From the Center for Western Priorities, this is The Landscape, your show about the outdoors and America's public lands. I'm Aaron Weiss in Denver. I'm Kate Gretzinger coming to you from Austin, Texas this week. On the show today, we're taking a look at the many paths to protecting 30% of America's land and water by the end of the decade. The Center for Western Priorities is launching a new multimedia storytelling series this week. We're calling it The Road to 30 Postcards. We've traveled across the country to bring you first-person perspectives behind a whole lot of iconic conservation efforts. You will hear from people on the ground who are making it happen through a series of short, three, four-minute documentary-style films, podcasts, and more. We are collectively, as an organization, very proud of this because no other groups so far have taken this kind of on-the-ground approach to highlighting landscapes across the country that are worthy of conservation and elevating the local voices that are calling for permanent protection. This first round of videos took our team to Texas, Nevada, Utah, California, and Oregon, plus a side trip to check out private conservation efforts in Colorado. Check out the previous episode of The Landscape in Your Feed to listen to our conversation with Colorado cattle rancher Jay Fetcher about how conservation easements have a big role to play on the road to protecting 30 by 30. Lauren Bogard is the director of campaigns and special projects here at CWP. She's often the one behind the scenes putting together podcast episodes with us. You heard her in that conversation with Jay last week. Lauren has spent most of the last two months on the road working with our video team on these postcards. So, Lauren, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Aaron. I'm excited to join. So, first off, where exactly have you been this fall? So we kicked things off over Labor Day weekend, visiting Bears Ears National Monument in southeast Utah. And then we had a little bit of a pause before spending October visiting the Kastner Range area near El Paso, Texas. We also went to the central coast of California, where we talked to some folks who are looking to establish the Chumash Marine Heritage Sanctuary. And then just last week, we were in southeastern Oregon and northern Nevada to visit the Greater Heart Sheldon region. And also uh, Nevada stopped in there as well. Oh my gosh. This is the impact of spending most of the last two <laughs> Where months. Where exactly have I been? <laughs> That's right. Nevada twice because we also went to the far southern corner, or I should say tip of Nevada, where we spoke with uh, some folks from the Mojave tribe about the proposal to designate the Aviquame National Monument. All right, well, let's start in Utah. I think it's safe to say that just about everyone listening to this podcast is familiar with the back and forth over Bears Ears. It was, of course, protected by President Obama. President Trump attempted to shrink it. President Biden, just a few weeks ago, restored the original National Monument boundaries. So why was it important for us to go back to Bears Ears? Sure. So, I mean, at the time we were there, it was actually pre-restoration. So... It was very important to tell the story about why Bears Ears needs to be protected. Um, And the stuff we heard from people on the ground in San Juan County, Utah, was that, you know, the restoration of the monument is huge and it is really important, um, mostly because it opens the door to getting more resources for the area to protect, to better protect the cultural resources that are there. So that is something that Biden actually said he would do in the, in the restoration proclamation or announcement. Um, And I mean, it's um, too soon to say whether that's happening yet. I don't think we've seen any actual changes on the ground, but um, yeah, we're really 
it's really important to to remind the administration what their responsibility is to protect these priceless cultural resources. Why don't we go ahead and, and hear from some of the folks that we talked to? You're, you're going to hear a, a bit of this uh, almost final video that's going to be released here shortly. Who, who do we who do we have? Sure. So um, one person who really talked about the importance of the cultural resources and the impact that visitation is having on them is Vaughn Haydenfeld. He's the co-founder of Friends of Cedar Mesa. And um, then we'll hear from Regina Lopez Whiteskunk. She is a Ute Mountain Ute tribal member and former tribal council member. I look at a lot of these sites now that in 40 years I've been here, some of them look like someone came with a vacuum cleaner and, and just removed everything. It's an incredible outdoor museum and we should treat it as such, as a museum. I am a grandmother of 12 grandchildren. Six of them reside here in San Juan County with their backyard facing to the Bears Ears landscape. They need to inherit the same opportunities that we had to share and experience places like Bears Ears in and around where our people historically have gathered and lived and celebrated and cried. One of the things I, I really appreciated about this video is that we've been in the midst of this Bears Ears fight for the better part of five years, and it's important to go back and just listen to why this landscape is so important. And uh, watching this video come together really put that front and center for me. But uh, Laura, now that the monument has been restored, is is this just the end of the story? <laughs> Well, like a lot of good conservation stories, this is one that has several chapters um, from being designated. The one thing that cannot be overlooked is the historic element of these five tribes coming together in support of creating Bears Ears in the first place. That's never been done before. So that was something that came through is, is um, how this would not have happened without that intertribal cooperation. So our hope is that uh, this is this restored designation is the beginning of a new chapter that will one that will focus on tribal co-management and collaborative leadership among all the stakeholders to determine uh, the right path forward in the future to protect the Bears Ears landscape. All right. Well, let's head from Utah over to Nevada and Aviquame. Uh, in some ways, it has a, a lot in common with the Bears Ears proposal. This is a, a tribally-led effort with an area that is under threat from development. Uh, who did you talk to? Sure. So we talked to Paul Jackson Jr. and Nora McDowell, and they actually both work for the Pipa Ahamakov Cultural Center, which is run by the Fort Mojave Tribe. And they're both tribal members who have lived in the area almost their entire lives, Nora also actually served as the chairwoman of the Fort Mojave tribe for a very long time, I think 25 years. Avik Wyame means spirit mountain. Avi means mountain. This area is important to us because it's who we are. It's the beginning. It's like if you want to talk about the Bible, it's like the Garden of Eden. It, it has a lot of value to the to tribe still, even though we don't own it anymore. It is still part of our ancestral lands. And so for us, um, 
the only way to really truly protect it um, from any further development or uh, destruction um, or desecration is, is to establish this monument. Lauren, we've spent a lot of time, obviously, looking at bear's ears over the years, but I think the Avikwame Spirit Mountain landscape is one that folks may be less familiar with. You were there uh, with Paul and Nora. What, what is the area like when you're there on the ground? Well, Aaron, part of the reason we wanted to visit this particular area is that there isn't a lot of footage or still photography. So it's hard to get a sense of what is there, uh, how it fits within the broader context of the landscape, which we're talking about hundreds of thousands of acres, the scale and the way you can see clouds move across the landscape and the light change on Spirit Mountain. It, it hits you. It feels like a powerful place. And what's interesting is how the the rocky crags and, and um, spires and, and kind of that, that epic geology meets then a plateau of Joshua trees. And this is one of the areas uh, outside California with the most Joshua trees of anywhere else. So that's an important ecosystem that would be incorporated into the Avikwame National Monument. What was your takeaway having spent uh, spent a couple days there looking at this at this area? How did it, how did it feel different, perhaps, than than Bears Ears or Heart Children or these other places we've gone? You know, I've had the pleasure of visiting places throughout the Southwest. I I like being in the desert. One of the things I like, and what uh, both Paul and Nora and others uh, across the different film locations we went to talked about is how much life there is in the desert and when you look really closely how much you can see and how much appreciation you have for these hardy plant and animal species that that survive in this um, in this ecosystem where you can have extremes of heat during the day and cold during the night and wind that'll just whip across and dry everything out so uh, to me when the color of the rocks was interesting um, how the the different types of vegetation, it felt familiar and also like a cousin of some other places I've been. Well, let's head over to California then. Uh, Chumash Heritage is a proposed marine sanctuary, and there is already quite a bit of good news there just in the last week or so. There is. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration announced last week that they would begin the public process to evaluate the proposal to establish the Chumash Marine Heritage Sanctuary. This is a, a big deal. It's the it's the how the effort can gather public input and move forward on on what that contours of that marine heritage sanctuary could look like going forward. And it'll take about two years. So it's a good thing that they took action last week. I think that's one of the the big takeaways here. All of these processes, even if it ends up being protected via presidential proclamation, it's not the kind of thing where the president just wakes up one morning and says, hey, give, give me an Antiquities Act thing to sign. There, There's a process involved in all of these. There is, because like many of the landscapes and public lands related issues we talk about, there are many ways that people interact with these places and different different ways of engagement, whether it's in the example of Chumash, there a lot of these areas are public and so the public can visit some of the areas that would be included in the monument itself. Uh, there's an abundance of wildlife, a lot of 
of birds, there's shipwrecks. So it's uh, in order for it to be a thoughtful proposal going forward, you have to take into account all of that different input and engagement. And as you noted, this is it's NOAA in this case, the Commerce Department leading this because it's primarily oceans. So all of these things in, in involve getting a whole bunch of different parts of the government to work together. Yeah, how about that? So given my own experience in the federal government, that's a challenge. But ultimately, when you involve everyone with a stake in, and especially the local community uh, earlier on, that you end up sometimes with a more durable path forward. All right, who are we going to hear from uh, here at Chumash Heritage? We talked to Violet Sagewalker. She's the chairwoman of the Northern Chumash tribe. And we also spoke with PJ Webb. She's a public interest attorney. Uh, I don't know that we have a clip for her this morning, but she joined us for the film as well. Well, let's let's take a listen to, to Violet Sage Walker here. The um, National Marine Sanctuary Program is the best fit for the Shumash heritage to protect our resources off of our coasts, our historic underwater village sites, our buried shipwrecks and our um, amazing uh, reefs and kelp forests and uh, fish habitat. It would close the gap between the Channel Islands National Marine Sanctuary and the Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary and ban offshore oil, natural gas extraction, seismic testing and pollution off the waters of our coasts. And I'd imagine this is especially timely given the the most recent oil spill off off the California coast. Did that you raise the the attention level you think that the Chumash heritage is getting right now? I would speculate that it it had to factor into the urgency for this uh, effort. And it is something that came up in our conversations when talking about the urgency of moving this proposal forward is is seeing immediately the impacts of that most recent spill off the California coast. Kate, I want to give you a chance to jump back in here uh, in, in case. Uh, well, I, I don't know the answer to this question. Have you looked at the B-roll? You, can you tell us what we're going to see on tape? For Shumash? Yeah. I mean, it's so incredibly beautiful. I'm actually confused how you guys captured a lot of it because there's a lot of beautiful shots of like over the water, waves crashing. My personal favorite are some sea otters cleaning their little faces with their paws. It's really heartwarming stuff. <laughs> It, it is incredible. And one of the things that I appreciated about this particular piece is that you see where, where the coast meets the sea. And we were driving along Highway 1, I think, and uh, had to pull off the road and, and take a look at this riparian wetland area where there were egrets and other kinds of waterfowl and some of that um, marine la- layer fog. And so Definitely having the opportunity to have some drone footage gives you a sense of how how this how the beach meets the sea and how it all connects together. I certainly was not ready for just how gorgeous the footage coming back from all of these places were going to be. You really get a sense of why the the need for protection there because these are these are stunning landscapes and in this case uh, a stunning section of ocean as well. Uh, I don't think it was ever our goal to shoot wildlife in any of these places because that's always tricky to show up for two days and just hope you're going to get otters. Um, so that's really, really wonderful. 
You know, on that note, Aaron, I do want to jump in and just make a quick plug for drones because I know a lot of people in the conservation community are anti-drone for many understandable reasons. Um, and I don't think that anyone should be able to go out and use a drone at any time, anywhere. But like, I will say, um, I live by Bears Ears and I've seen it, you know, I, I, I've seen it from the ground so many times. Um, but seeing things from the air changes your perspective. It really, it really drives home how broad and varied and gorgeous and unbelievable these landscapes are. So I think that that is um, something to keep in mind. <laughs> and and I should note, for the record, uh, permits are important. Where you need a permit to shoot a drone or any other sort of filming, follow the rules, gang. And uh, <laughs> yeah. because if everyone's out there with the drone, uh, that does get, you know, you can end up disrupting wildlife yeah. uh, inadvertently. So we're, we're being very careful uh, with with the crews on on this to make sure that we're following all the right rules and using drones appropriately in ways that that get you those pictures but without disturbing wildlife. So there aren't really any spots on the California coast that you would describe as desolate, but heading up from there to Oregon, uh, inland the Oregon Nevada border, this Hart Sheldon region, which I wasn't familiar with recently, and boy, this is pretty remote, Lauren. Uh, yes, <laughs> I can verify that. Um, you know, it actually reminded me, I had the opportunity to travel to East Africa when I was in high school, and it felt like the Rift Valley in terms of uh, uh, the high desert ecosystem meeting um, an enormous escarpment and then plateauing into a a meadow with some playas as far as your eyes could see. The the scale was almost hard to take in, um, in, in, in without just doing a complete panorama, you know, left to right, looking at the the entire place. So it was it was it's rare to find some place like that in the lower forty eight. And you're freshly back from there. We have not even seen uh, the, the footage or. Uh, listen to the, the sound yet, but who did you talk to there and, and what can we look forward to hearing? Sure. So we spoke with Gail Collins. She's the former supervisory wildlife biologist for the uh, Hart Sheldon complex. She actually did a GPS collaring study of pronghorn in between 2011 to 2013, which gave scientific evidence for what folks had long suspected, which is the existence of a pronghorn migration corridor between the two wildlife refuges. So Hart Mountain Antelope Refuge is in southeastern Oregon, and then across the border, uh, the Sheldon National Wildlife Refuge is in northern Nevada. And between those two, there is a pronghorn migration corridor. And you mentioned these these various areas on each side of the state line. Uh, this is an example of how there are a number of different mechanisms that can protect land. And supporters here are not looking towards a national monument designation necessarily. No, and that's something that we were intentional about with this project, is recognizing that the 30 by 30 goal has to encompass efforts beyond national monuments, that there are a lot of different ways where you can get to 30%. And so actually, as originally envisioned, way back in the 1930s, uh, was a, the idea of connecting these two 
refuges and having a much broader, greater heart shelled and protected. So in some ways, we're coming back to the beginning with this idea of preserving this wildlife migration corridor, which again, is incredibly rare in the lower 48 to have that. And one of the things about that is uh, these animals' fidelity to that route. It's not as though they'll just come up against an obstacle and, and decide to go around. I mean, when necessity requires, but this is what they're hardwired to do, to follow these routes. And there are inevitably bottlenecks and choke points, and that's where the most focused effort needs to be made to protect that route for them. And I think it's interesting to note there are some similarities then to Bears Ears as well, where that original proposal goes back to an FDR-era proposal for a greater Escalante National Monument, and the original proposal there was 4 million acres. These original proposals that date back to FDR's Interior Secretary, Harold Ickes, uh, they are coming back because there was a lot of that work that was done during the Civilian Conservation Corps New Deal era. We're, we're finishing history in a lot of ways here. That's the hope. And I want to mention to the other folks who we talked to, uh, Gail's husband, Aaron Collins, was a park ranger at the Sheldon National Wildlife Refuge. And he was also an outdoor recreation planner. And so one of the things we talked to him about was was that the value of that kind of solitude and remoteness and being able to be uh, in such an area where you're, where you're a visitor like that. Um, and he also shared with me something that I didn't realize, which is that some sagebrush species can be hundreds of years old. And that's uh, a child compared to some of the juniper trees, which can be thousands of mm. years old. So this is an, an old and a, both hardy and a fragile ecosystem. And then the other per- person we spoke to is Julie Weichel. She's a large animal veterinarian for several decades. She spent her entire life living in the Great Basin, grew up in Winnemucca, Nevada. And she also is on the board of Friends of Heart Mountain. So she gave some really interesting perspectives from her own life and experience. She spent uh, so much of her life exploring this area and now has six grandchildren who love it and and always want to to visit the refuge when they visit her. All right, well, let's head south and wrap up in Texas then with Castner Range, which is a really interesting monument proposal near El Paso. Uh, Kate, who did you talk to there? So actually, before I tell you about who we talked to, I want to just mention that it is a very strange place because it's a former army weapons testing range um, that has sort of turned into this really treasured green space in the middle of a large urban area. Um, it's in the Franklin Mountains, which if you've been to El Paso, you probably recognize would recognize. Um, and it's sort of the it's sort of nestled within a state park, the Franklin Mountains State Park in Texas, but it's not protected, obviously, because it belongs to the army still. So there is a broad coalition of people on the ground working to change that. Um, and we did talk to a lot of them, actually. This is the video with the largest number of guests. And so we've got um, some clips for you here from Alexa Moreno, a field organizer with the Frontera Land Alliance, and Angel Pena, who's a conservation advocate with Green Latinos. Um, the range itself has so much potential for different outdoor activities, such as hiking, rock climbing, stargazing, all of these different activities that would benefit the city itself economically. Um, I was driving through Castor Range uh, the other day, 
And when I was looking down in the valleys, uh, I saw a future uh, where me and my kids uh, could hike down and have a picnic. I saw a future where my kids, kids uh, will be able to enjoy uh, the tradition and culture that is El Paso, um, that is founded in land and people and people in land. And so that is what I am most excited about. One of the things that I think is interesting about Castner Range, this is a beautiful landscape. Folks talk about the the poppies that show up there, not every spring, but often, and it's just stunning. But ironically, this is a landscape for the moment that you can only enjoy by looking at and can't really go into. Yeah, I'd love to hear from Lauren about that. She was on the ground there, and um, I'm curious what that was like. You know, it was strange. I I didn't realize El Paso is one of the largest urban areas in the nation, and it's a binational community. Ciudad Juarez is just across the border, and it's hard to imagine without the Franklin Mountains. Uh, and then what's interesting is how development goes literally to the edge of the Kastner Range, and you can only look into it. You can't necessarily walk on it, interact. Because there's unexploded ordnance, potentially. Yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. And and actually, it, we had some challenges wanting to get that uh, perspective, bird's eye view with the drone and not being able to fly there because it's a military area. But with that, one of the things that two of the folks we talked to are Army veterans. Mm. And so there's a, there is a really palpable connection among people who live in El Paso because of the bloom of the poppies and just because of what, what brings people to El Paso and, and the history and the, uh, as a, for many veterans, there are a high population of veterans in the El Paso area. And uh, two of the ones we spoke to mentioned a connection to Kastner because of that. And I did want to jump in really quick. Alexa, who we just heard from in the first quote, um, she actually ha had a really nice, another nice quote that you'll hear in the full video about how even just seeing all of the poppies that bloom in the spring on Kastner Range um, remind people of the military um, veterans and active military that are in El Paso and also overseas serving our country. So it seems like it has a really big symbolic importance for people in El Paso. And the, the long-term path to protection there, they're looking towards a national monument, but this will also then require some long-term cleanup in order for, for people to get actually onto this landscape to enjoy it. Absolutely. And it, it that's long overdue. But to have that access, it's 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 frustrating because it's essentially public land, but the public doesn't have access to it. And in a large urban area like that, there's such a need for parks and open spaces. And in fact, we went on a hike where we were walking along towards on the um, northern edge of Kastner Range. And we were there from, you know, just after sunrise until late morning. And there were so many people walking and enjoying the area. So you can imagine what this would mean to have that area opened up for El Pasoans and visitors. So, Lauren, I want to give you the last word here. Are there any through lines? What are the consistent things that you experienced having visited all of these places over the course of, of just a few weeks? It's interesting because you wouldn't necessarily expect when you look at how we've crisscrossed the map over the last two months, going from high desert in Oregon to the California coast to southern Nevada desert and Bears Ears 
and then to an urban area like El Paso, you wouldn't necessarily think that there would be through lines. But there are a couple things that I that I notice. And one of them is that many of these efforts have been in the works for decades. Uh, as, as we mentioned, the Hart Sheldon region, uh, proposals to protect the integrity of the ecosystem and the means for wildlife to sustain themselves, that started in the 1930s. And the community of El Paso has been asking for access to a safe and open Kastner Range for 50 years. And similarly, the Chumash tribe, uh, northern Chumash, has been working to establish this marine heritage sanctuary for over 40 years. And then, of course, when you look at Bears Ears, the ancestral roots go back thousands. So it's uh, it gives you an appreciation for how much this means to people on the ground to continue that fight and to continue to push this effort forward despite change of administration, change of leadership, any number of things. And then the other thing I'd say with that is when you we were in when we were in Bears Ears, we visited Wolfman panel and there are bullet holes in the panel and it just makes your heart sink. And when we talked to Nora McDowell and Paul Jackson Jr. about Aviquame, they have to b- maintain constant vigilance about vandalism to the petroglyphs in the area, about disrespect for the landscape and what it means to them. So one of the takeaways is the urgency of these efforts. You can't necessarily replace a thousand-year-old juniper tree. So it's in once these things are damaged or... Um, compromised, they're not necessarily going to come back. And I suppose you can draw some parallels there to what we saw this morning. We're recording this Monday morning, and uh, just before we, we, we taped this, the president announced he's taking the first steps to protect a 10-mile buffer around the Chaco Canyon in New Mexico. And that is another area where there has been a, a decade or more push to protect that region because it is so culturally rich, but also there is a very imminent threat of oil and gas drilling. And at a tribal summit this morning, the president said, yes, I am finally doing this. And that's something that uh, the the Pueblos in New Mexico in particular have been asking for for years. And I think it's a, it's a sign that these things do take time to finally make it to to that point where the White House says, yes, this is important enough to do it. And by the same token, well, the, the clock is ticking. We have you know, essentially three years left on President Biden's first term, and these things take a while. Exactly. And it's my hope that decisions like the one the President Biden is making this morning to do that 10-mile mineral withdrawal around the greater uh, Chaco culture, National Historical Park, and even kickstarting this effort with NOAA around Chumash, my hope is that those kinds of decisions will be energizing, uh, not just to those campaigns on the ground, but to others to see that <laughs> decades of hard work and advocacy uh, can can pay off. Well, we have links to the first batch of Road to 30 postcards in the show notes. Uh, you can find them at roadto30.org slash postcards. Lauren Bogard, Campaigns and Special Projects Director here at the Center for Western Priorities. Thank you for all of your hard work on this. Congratulations on bringing these stories to the world. Thank you, Aaron. And thank you, Kate. Kate was instrumental. 
Uh, she was our right-hand woman on the ground. We couldn't have been to Bears Ears without her. Um, and to Tyler McIntosh, he joined for Hart Sheldon and everyone else on the team and uh, um, the folks we worked with. It's, it's a pleasure, and we're really excited to share these with everyone. Well, there you have it. Go watch those postcards, share them with friends, send them to your family for Thanksgiving. We'll be back after the holiday with more news to talk about that we didn't get to in this episode, including the Build Back Better Act and what it could mean for public lands as it heads to the Senate, plus those protections for Chaco that we mentioned, the oil and gas lease sale in the Gulf of Mexico, 1.7 million acres leased that won't start producing oil for a decade or more. Uh, We've called that a carbon bomb for good reason. And if you missed our last episode with rancher Jay Fetcher, go put that on for a holiday drive. It is a longer conversation and one of the most personal interviews that we've had here on The Landscape. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. That is the best way for new listeners to find us. I'm Aaron Weiss. On behalf of Kate, Lauren, and the whole team at the Center for Western Priorities, thanks for listening, and have a very happy Thanksgiving. 